from the studios of Postscript Media and Canary Media. Russia's war on Ukraine is creating needless loss, pain, and suffering. It's forcing Europe's largest displacement of people since World War II. And it's creating a lot of economic pain that will be felt way beyond Europe for a long time to come. Pain that is closely tied to energy. The International Monetary Fund says Russia's invasion of Ukraine will have a severe impact on the global economy. The ripple effects are already being felt here in the U.S. With the Biden administration now considering direct sanctions on the Kremlin's crude oil, prices will likely climb higher than they ever have before. And since Russia is a major exporter of oil and natural gas, this invasion is likely to put increased pressure on the global supply chain, forcing prices to rise even more. There are a few moments in recent history that have brought sweeping change to energy markets and energy policy. The oil shocks of the 1970s, the Chernobyl disaster in 1986, the 2008 financial crisis, the Fukushima nuclear meltdown in 2011, and then most recently, the COVID pandemic. We can now add Russia's invasion of Ukraine to the list. So much of this war is tied up in energy. Russia is one of the biggest fossil fuel producers in the world. Europe, which depends on Russia for 40% of its gas for heating and one quarter of its oil, is now considering a future without those resources. Sanctions that cut off Russia from the global financial system have so far spared energy. But then the traders and governments that buy Russian oil just stop buying it. Western oil companies like BP, Shell, Exxon, they've abandoned operations in the country. And now global oil prices have risen to highs not seen since 14 years ago, and record high gas prices are on their way. This is happening at a very bad time, when tight energy supplies related to COVID disruptions have pushed prices up and up and up, and when markets go crazy, crazy things start to happen. The spike in natural gas prices will make coal more competitive, keeping a lot more dirty energy on the grid for longer. Operators of nuclear power plants are concerned about high uranium prices, or even a supply shortage, depending on how deep sanctions go. Just days ago, Russia shelled Europe's biggest nuclear power plant in desperation, which could have created an incomprehensible disaster for the region. Joe Biden is probably going to spend the coming months talking about increasing fossil fuel supply to moderate high prices at a point when he really wanted to talk about cutting it to address climate change. In his State of the Union address last week, he barely even mentioned climate. Heck, members of Congress are back to wearing drill baby drill shirts. Elon Musk is demanding more oil and gas production. People are calling Russia's invasion of Ukraine a breakdown of the post-Cold War order. And it's also a breakdown, or at least a massive rearrangement, in the current energy order. We are in new territory here. We're talking about a major, major shift in how countries think about their energy supply, a major shift in Russia's role as an energy supplier in the world, I mean, it's just changed the way governments and individuals are going to think about energy security going forward. Just measuring the amount of energy that would be impacted by this, this is, without any risk of error, the largest disruption in a commercial energy relationship ever since uh, energy trade started. When it comes to fossil fuels, building new infrastructure is a multi-year process, and we need energy now. Whatever now happens in Europe, it impacts the whole world. This is The Carbon Copy. I'm Stephen Lacey. 
week on the show, a conversation with two experts watching the energy market fallout from Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Both of them worried about the economic and security consequences, but also hopeful it could accelerate the push away from fossil fuels faster. Faced with a surge of distributed energy resources, electric cars, and grid constraints, utilities are ramping up dynamic pricing. But the results are mixed. If utilities don't implement rates correctly or transparently, it could be a major roadblock for the energy transition and a headache for customers. On June 13th, Latitude Media and GridX will host a Frontier Forum to examine the imperative of good rate design and the consequences of getting it wrong. Register at the link in the show notes or go to latitudemedia.com events. Clean energy and climate tech are policy-driven industries, and anyone working in this field touches local, state, and federal policy in a very real way. And that's why you should be listening to Political Climate, a podcast from Latitude Media and Boundary Stone Partners that delivers an insider's view on climate policy and politics. Every other week, co-hosts Julia Piper, Emily Dominich, and Brandon Hurlbuck cover the nuances of government funding, regulations, backroom negotiations, and the election, of course. Political Climate is a show for people who want authentic conversations and strong opinions from voices across the political spectrum. Listen at latitudemedia.com or subscribe to the show anywhere you get your podcasts. First, let's start with an expert in Europe. A lot of folks did not have a global energy crisis sparked by a Russian war at the top of their list last year, but Pierre Noel did. I was convinced that Putin was dead serious and therefore I have considered ever since very early December, that a war was not only possible, but likely. Pierre is a global research scholar at the Center on Global Energy Policy at Columbia University. He's based in Paris, and he's very familiar with the long history of Europe's dependence on Russian fossil fuels. Europe gets a lot of fossil gas from Russia, so much that when EU leaders put together a package of sanctions that basically cut Russia out of the financial system, they avoided penalizing banks that were brokering energy sales. Doing so would be catastrophic for the people and economies of Europe. So suddenly everyone is asking, could European countries cope if Russian gas supplies were cut off? What is the answer? The answer is that we would cope only partially, which is another way of saying we would not cope or we would not cope satisfactorily. Uh, and just to be a bit more explicit, in some countries of Europe, and it's difficult to know exactly where, but... Uh, the supply of energy, whether it's natural gas or whether it's electricity or whether it's heat, would have to be rationed. Some homes and businesses would not get the final energy that they expect and that they have contracted for. I mean, it's too big for the market to address, even if you factor in the massive increase in prices that would be generated you would have to have some proper rationing, which is just administrative allocation of what is available, meaning that some consumers uh, could not be served. This has been astonishing to watch how swift and deep the financial sanctions against Russia have been. I think many people have seen moves from European countries that they didn't expect this quickly. And it's also been, I think, somewhat surprising to people that we haven't seen energy supplies cut off, that Putin hasn't weaponized energy yet. So what is surprising you right now as we move deeper into this crisis? 
we in the West are weaponizing. Uh, I don't see Russia weaponizing energy here. You know, if anything, they need the money more than ever, right? I mean, they, they are, you know, it's going to be a long-term confrontation. Their economy will go down the drain. They need energy, say, you know, energy export uh, uh, revenues more than ever. But also, you know, if they were to cut off Europe, surely they are even more, if you want, unite everybody against them. Uh, I am surprised that the governments have really uh, paid great attention not to make energy imports impossible or not to meddle with the the financial architecture behind the, the, the energy imports. This... Um, this is this is remarkable, but this is, I think, sensible as well, uh, because we would not get anything out of uh, uh, cutting ourselves off from Russia now, and we would create a short-term severe energy security problem for us that doesn't make it easier to solve our long-term energy security problem. So here in the U.S., we are already starting to see some of these impacts. We're seeing natural gas prices starting to rise. Uh, and there's there are now questions about, with gas prices on the rise, how competitive coal is here in the U.S. And we start to see these second-order impacts where you could see coal plants on the grid longer because natural gas prices, because it's more competitive with burning gas. How might some of those second-order impacts play out in markets around the world when you see these shifting price dynamics? What you've described has been playing out for quite some time, long before the crisis. Okay, the price of natural gas in the U.S. shot up uh, or started to to rise long before the crisis. The, uh, the 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 dispatching in the in the U.S. power sector went went back to favor coal a number of months ago, perhaps even a a, a year ago. So you can already see in the U.S. emissions data the impact that it that, that it's had. It's playing out in Europe. And in Asia as well. In Europe, because we price carbon through a cap and trade regime, we have somewhat dented this comeback of coal at the cost of an even more pronounced increase in our electricity prices. But in Asia, uh, uh, you see the same as you see in the US. Coal is, is back against natural gas. This is going to be aggravated by the crisis. This is just about the worst, the worst possible market situation regarding your, you know, your, your climate change objectives and the, the few years ahead where we were supposed to dramatically accelerate the, uh, the phase, phasing out of coal. This is a very big one. This is something that at least in Europe will have, will be a major driver of energy policy going forward. Coming up after the break, more on the pain and the impact in oil markets and the potential positive outcomes in policymaking. Mark your calendars for June 13th at noon Eastern. That's when Latitude Media and GridX will host a live interactive discussion on implementing modern utility rates. Dynamic rates are vital for motivating customers to electrify, adopt DERs, and embrace demand flexibility. Utility rates could make or break the energy transition. So how do we do it right? 
Join Latitude Media's Stephen Lacey, Gridex CCO Scott Engstrom, and economist Ahmad Faruqi for an in-depth discussion on the future of rates on June 13th. Register for free by clicking the link in the show notes or go to latitudemedia.com slash events. I'm Julia Piper. I'm Brandon Hurlbut. And I'm Emily Dominich. A little over a year ago, political climate took a break so we could focus on the groundwork of implementing America's biggest ever climate bill, the Inflation Reduction Act. I'm excited to say political climate is back. And I'll be joined by my two co-hosts to riff on the top political stories and insider scoops from state houses to the halls of Congress to regulatory agencies and even international climate talks. We'll explain how those developments are driving industry decisions today. Political Climate is a show for people who want authentic conversations. And to learn about how energy and climate policy is shaped within both political parties from the people who have actually helped shape it. So join me, Brandon and Emily, every other week, starting in April, for fresh episodes of Political Climate. Subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Russia has been pushed out of the global economy. But so far, America and Europe have not imposed direct sanctions on Russian fossil fuels. So why did energy prices rise so quickly? I think the biggest, biggest indicator we're seeing right now is that European refiners and even global trading companies are refusing to take Russian cargoes. And so you're seeing cargoes of oil that were planning to leave Russia or have left Russia, and they cannot find a country or a company to buy them. That's Amy Myers Jaffe. She's a global energy policy and security expert who runs the Climate Policy Lab at the Tufts University Fletcher School. Amy is describing something called self-sanctioning. Even though the first round of sweeping sanctions didn't prevent people from buying Russian oil, no one wanted to take the risk. So the third biggest oil producer is being cut out of the market. That's why oil prices are at 14-year highs, and we could see oil at $200 a barrel this year. We're talking about a major disruption when the ability to supply that from the Middle East is much more constrained because there hasn't been a lot of drilling and we have very limited spare capacity now. So we're really facing a deep crisis uh, in the energy markets, which will translate into a financial crisis. Yeah, let's unpack what you mean when you say crisis. So the precipitating factor is higher prices. When you say crisis, what do you mean when we when we talk about inflation? Well, in Europe, natural gas prices in certain countries have never, ever been this high. I mean, we're talking about enormous shock for customers of heating oil, for industry, for individual homeowners. And then you're adding on top of that, you know, as the price of oil goes above 100, uh, for Europe, which imports a lot of its oil Uh, That's a burden on consumers. Uh, It's a little less so because they tax, have a very high tax on oil, so that holds down um, use. But here in the United States, we're in a bit of better position. Um, We have a lot of oil production here in the United States. Um, We uh, export refined products. So when you look at the oil, crude oil we export, which is about 3 million barrels a day, and the refined product exports that fluctuate from 3 to 5 million barrels a day, and you put that on top of our oil production, um, which is 11 or 12 million barrels a day, where our balance of payments for oil is, is very narrow. Like we're, we're getting a lot of revenue from our exports, and that's helping our balance of payments for the few imports that we're making. And a lot of our imports come from Mexico and Canada, so good news. But 
you know, it's a global crisis. And what happens to the economies of Europe affects the United States. What happens to economies in Asia affects the United States. We still have to deal with the fact that the whole global economy is going to be torn asunder by the fact that we're going to have this unbelievable escalation in oil prices and natural gas prices in some locations. And what does that, how does that contribute to a financial crisis and a purchasing power crisis? What, how do we typically see those high prices move their way through the economy? So, you know, to be sort of guns and butter economists about it, if I'm in an, an, a, a business and I'm having to pay for higher energy costs, then I don't have that cash or capital to pay for employing more people. Maybe I'm going to lay off uh, workers to cover that burden. And, you know, for every dollar that you're having to spend on gasoline, that's a dollar you're not buying, getting yourself a pair of jeans or um, eating in a restaurant. And so it does suck some consumer energy and consumer spending out of the market. I've been struck by some of the other potential impacts. Let's take the U.S., for example. If gas prices continue to go up, then you continue to see coal being competitive with natural gas and the electricity sector. And we've already seen in the last year that coal plants have been operating more than normal because of higher gas prices. So you could lock in coal for a longer period of time here in the U.S. Uh, you could see massive changing changes to driving habits. You, we could see supply shortages of uranium, for example, and there are utilities with a high number of nuclear power plants that are concerned about Russian supply of uranium. How are you thinking about all these other second-order impacts? We have a lot of technologies today that we didn't used to have. You know, uh, I always tell people as a model, uh, having worked for many years in California, uh, a few years back, there was a big accident at a natural gas, the, the largest natural gas storage hub in California, Aliso Canyon, had a major crisis. And uh, the state of California shut it down. And everybody said, oh, no, we're going to have an electricity crisis again. We can't get off natural gas. We need to keep it on. It doesn't matter that it's dangerous. And um, and the solar companies went to Sacramento and lobbied. And and indeed, you saw the city of L.A. and, and other big uh, buyers of electricity tender for solar panels combined with battery storage. 104 megawatts of capacity went in in about two months or three months' time. And that whole crisis was averted. They were able to keep the natural gas storage unit off until it could be safely uh, repaired. So we know that renewables have a high potential. Um, and it's important, for example, in Europe, there's something called imbalance markets where we trade electricity from one country to another. So French nuclear power can be shared with other countries or hydro and geothermal uh, in Scandinavia can be shared across borders. And it's very important to have those imbalance markets function because we can absolutely optimize how much renewable energy we can use because we can move off curtailed renewables to markets where we can create more demand by trading. Uh, we need to use those solutions and not hoard energy, whether that's electricity or other kinds of forms of energy, 
uh, because that's how we're going to get the best solutions to having some sudden loss of uh, materials that we're used to having a ready supply of. Many folks are describing this as a major shift in the post-Cold War geopolitical order. We are suddenly in a new world. How much of a new energy world are we in? Oh, we're in a totally new energy world. Let's hope that it, even though this year we're going to have a lot of negative things, we're going to have to bring back on coal plants in Europe, we're going to see other kinds of of, uh, fuel being used that we thought we were moving away from. In the end, a shock like this is going to make countries double down on creating energy in a ways that they have more control. And that's basically, for the most part, renewable energy. This last point brings us back to what this show is ultimately all about, climate. What does this shock mean for the transition away from fossil fuels in Europe and the rest of the world, the transition we so desperately need to make right now? Amy is actually optimistic about where it could take policy. In the end, this is going to accelerate the energy transition, not the opposite. Even though this year you're going to see higher emissions because we're going to have to turn on facilities that have been previously retired. And those facilities will always be there when we're having a crisis. But in the end, the commitment to renewable energy is going to go up in many places around the world, specifically because it doesn't get geopolitically disrupted. At the moment, right here in the U.S., it looks like a major distraction from President Biden's climate agenda. But it's pushing Europe to deepen support for clean energy. French President Emmanuel Macron announced ambitious plans to build more than a dozen nuclear power plants that would limit Russian fossil gas sales to French utilities. And in December, Germany approved a $68 billion climate package to accelerate green infrastructure spending and cut imports of fossil fuels. It's going to be chaotic. It's going to be messy. But Pierre thinks the momentum will only build further. Europe doesn't have many other choices. The short term is bad. Uh, Gas is being made more expensive. But longer term, the forces that you've you've alluded to are going to play in a very aggressive way. So whatever is done to wean ourselves off Russian natural gas will be leveraged to accelerate our decarbonization uh, objective. So in that sense, it's positive. Governments in Europe will be empowered, potentially dramatically so, to uh, accelerate the, 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 the transformation of our energy systems. Pierre Noel is a global research scholar at the Columbia University Center on Global Energy Policy. And Amy Myers-Jaffe is managing director of the Climate Policy Lab at the Tufts University Fletcher School. This is a highly consequential story. Stay with us as it evolves. The Carbon Copy is a co-production of Postscript Media and Canary Media. Our producers are Jamie Kaiser, Dalvin Abawaje, Daniel Waldorf, and Alexandria Herr. Ann Bailey is our editor. Cecily Mesa-Martinez is our managing producer. Sean Marquand mixed the episode and composed our theme. Original music came from Blue Dot Sessions and Echo Finch. 
Thanks to Canary Media for their partnership. Find all our back episodes at canarymedia.com or wherever you get your shows. And give us a rating and review wherever you get your pods, on Spotify or Apple or anywhere else. Thank you so much. We will catch you next week. I'm Stephen Lacey. This is The Carbon Copy. 